back to the Anything Out Loud podcast. Today, I am your host, Drew McCaffrey, and with me again is our resident Star Wars fan, John. Hi, everybody. And we're returning to the work of Michael A. Stackpole with The Kratos Trap. If you want to support the show, consider checking us out on Patreon and Coffee. But for now, let's dive right in and talk about this curious little book. So, John, today we have uh, the third of the Rogue Squadron books. Yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, I think it's going to be an interesting conversation. Uh, we both read this book much younger in our lives, and it sounds like we both have a, a pretty different, Dif- different opinion. Yeah, different view of it now, rereading it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so let's do a little summary here. Uh, the Kratos Trap starts with a bit of a deep breath after the Rebel Alliance, now the New Republic, captured Coruscant at the end of Wedge's Gamble. Corrin Horn has been captured by Asan Isard and taken to her secret prison, Lusankia, for brainwashing, but the rest of the rogues and his friends believe him to be dead. Tycho Selchu is on trial for Corrin's murder, and for being an Imperial spy, but the rogues are standing by him, believing in his innocence despite mountains of circumstantial evidence. Aiello Wasiri, Corrin's old partner from Corsac, is on the other side, helping the prosecution. In the midst of this, the New Republic is in dire straits. Isard left behind not only the Krydos virus, which is ravaging the non-human population of Coruscant, but also Curtin Lure, with instructions to carry out a terror campaign. As the New Republic scrambles to meet public health needs, Rogue Squadron gets called into action. They attack a space station owned by Warlord Zinj, stealing a shipment of Bacta. Meanwhile, Curtin Lure is confronted by Fleury Voru, who suborns him. With Voru nominally in charge of Coruscant policing, he allows Lure to hit strategic targets and boost Voru's own black market operations. As all this is happening, Corrin is being tortured in Lusankia, but refusing to break. Isard sends him to the general prison population, where he meets Jan Dadana and Evier Derricote. Corrin begins planning his escape. In the wake of the attack on Zinja's station, Wedge and Mirax meet a member of the subversive Ashurn, a group of Radix rebels from Typhera, who wish to side with the New Republic. The rogues then head to Ryloth, where they establish trade for Rill Core, an important ingredient in battling the virus. With Tycho's trial coming to a head, Ayala's husband, Derek, reappears from Imperial captivity. Corrin executes his escape, leaving Derricote dead in his wake. Lure springs an ambush on Rogue Squadron, but his men are killed by Zinj in turn. Lure, terrified of the consequences of betraying Isard, makes a deal with Ayala to testify and clear Tycho of the charges. Corrin gets out of Lusankia and realizes he's still on Coruscant. With Whistler's help, and that of an old Corellian Jedi's lightsaber, Corrin finds his way to the court. Before he can get there, though, Derek kills Lure and reveals that he was brainwashed in Lusankia. Events come to a head with Tycho's fate on the line. The rogues are scrambled to stop a widespread terrorist attack, but as they fight, a new threat emerges. Lusankia, now revealed as an Executor-class Star Dreadnought, rips itself free from the cityscape of Coruscant. The rogues fight off ties, but Arisi is captured. Corrin clears Tycho of the murder charges, and Wedge realizes that Arisi was the Imperial spy all along. With Isard fled to Typhera, Corrin turns down Luke's offer to join him in Jedi training. Instead, Corrin resigns from Rogue Squadron, promising to free the, le- the rest of the Lusankia prisoners and oust Isard from Typhera. Wedge and the rest of the rogues join him. Alright. Yeah. So... I think the, the place to start with this one is that it's 
it's a very different feel of a book from either Rogue Squadron it's, or Wedge's Gamble. It is kind of a more procedural, light on the action book in a very action heavy series. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like when I read when I read the Kratos Trap as a kid, it was my least favorite X Wing book. Understandable. And it was it was frustrating because it was like there's only two short starfighter scenes. I'm like, yep. I'm reading these books for X-Wings blowing up TIE Fighters. You A couple know? And very brief battles. Yeah, we get like one very short simulator mission with Corrin when he's being tortured and yeah. they're trying to brainwash him. But other than that, it's like we have uh, attacking Zinj's forces at the Yagdul station. Right. And then we have the, the kind of big battle at the end where the Lusankia comes up. Right. And other than that, it's like courtroom scenes and trade scenes and, <laughs> and negotiations with the provisional council and like, and uh, yeah, this this one as a younger reader, I did not really appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, same. And and now I reread it. I'm like, huh, this this is actually a pretty decent book. I like, think one of the reasons I I do like this book it's not a top tier star wars book for me but i do like it because it makes it's one of those books that makes the star wars universe feel real like tangible and big um makes makes it feel believable it's it's like the the characters the new republic are are doing things that of course it's a very fantastical universe but they're doing things that theoretically a government would need to do in this sort of situation and so i'm good with that for for some of this slower more procedural type setting right yeah and and i think what really drives this book and this is night and day from rogue squadron is that it's it's all about the characters and and their own conflicts and and what's going on inside of them you know it's about the rogues trying to heal from Corrin's death. It's about Corrin fighting to find hope in a hopeless prison situation. It's, you know, it's about Mirax dealing with her grief. It, it, Everyone has trauma in this book. <laughs> yeah, and and I, I feel like a lot of characters had conflict and emotion and, and, and development where previously it was... In, in Rogue Squadron, it was just Corrin. And then in, in Wedge's Gamble, it was like, okay, now we have a little bit more with, like, Gavin and uh, and, and and maybe Aniri Forge. Um, but, but this book really, really hammers home the toll that the war takes on, on these people's emotions and, and, like, mental well-being. Right. I mean, just the stuff that Ayella goes through in this book. Yeah, she gets beaten up pretty good in this one. She also gets a lot more characterization. I think she had, she was a pretty minor role before yeah. this book. Yeah, but uh, but so just kind of sticking on on that idea of like style and like narrative themes, um, I I have to bring up you know this is a Michael A. Stackpole book. He still does some of those same yep uh, <laughs> speaker tag things, and there were there. Were, there were even points where it went beyond just kind of annoying me to where 
it got confusing where like like there was one scene where uh, it's a lure point of view and he's talking with one of his like special intelligence operatives and there's a a you know a line which says the intelligence agent frowned i'm like which intelligence yeah. agent? They both. <laughs> They're are. all. Everybody in this room is an intelligence agent. Like, and, <laughs> and can we give him a name? Like, I don't know. Like, yeah. Just, just say lure frowned. It's, it's more concise. It's or the other man. Yeah, like Bill. I don't know. <laughs> like Steve. Bill from Commodore. Yeah. It, put it, put him up in that you know dramatist persona in the beginning of the book. <laughs> Bill, male intelligence operative from yeah, uh, but but on the other hand, I I did have a couple of notes of something that I was impressed by, and this is another big change from the earlier books. Is Stackpole's more willing to write from different points of view in this book? It's yes. not you know like just corn and wedge, or yeah. or corn and wedge and Gavin. In this book, we get points of view from, you know, uh, Ayella. We get points of view from Gavin. We get points of view from Lure. We get, you know, like, there's uh, even, like, Noara Venn has mm-hmm. points of view. The courtroom stuff. Yeah, yeah. And, and my favorite part of it is around the courtroom. Because going into this book, we're rooting for all of these characters. But this book pits characters we like against each other yes and so when we have a point of view from noara or we have a point of view from Ayella, it complicates their characters because we're seeing Ayella in in a negative light or we're seeing noara in a negative light uh, or at least in an antagonistic light and that's not something you see very often in in Star Wars books. No, like, I I think, yeah, in this era of Star Wars books, it's rare. Um, you'll you'll get plenty of that. Yeah, once you get into New, New Jedi, Jedi Order and Legacy yeah, of the Force, lots of that. That's pretty much the main thing. But this is, I mean, this is early early EU stuff. Yeah, here. this is like what ninety six. And I think that's kind of a bold step that Stackpole took, and I appreciate it a lot. Yeah, it, it's the kind of depth, the kind of complexity that the Star Wars universe can support but rarely gets the opportunity i i think so when people when people think star wars they kind of automatically retreat to lucas's vision for Mm -hmm. understandable reasons um where it's a classic good versus evil struggle very black and white um not a lot of nuance it's it's more about monomyth and archetypes yeah um so I get it. Like when there's new works, especially the post Disney stuff, that's pretty much what you get. Um, but with with the universe that came out of those movies, there's so much potential for story to, storytelling that I think a lot of um, you know the, the the more complex stories uh, that could be told out of that are maybe neglected in favor of simpler. You know, I hate the word, but more tropey yeah. um, type stories. So it's nice to see something 
in this era, you know, mid '90s when Star Wars was having its comeback, um, mm-hmm. you know, ha- have some conflict among the protagonists, among the, the good guys, um, and it's not just straight up Empire bad, Rebels good. Like there's right. there's some complexity here. Yeah, it it was really uh, around that kind of turn of the millennium when New Jedi Order and the prequel movies came out that right. we started getting that depth that that shades of gray sort of messy depiction of our heroes you know where we find out like oh well look at the jedi our, our heroes from from the first movies and from the you know the expanded universe the jedi are kind of dicks aren't all they like, you know, cracked up to be and <laughs> people level a lot of criticisms at the prequels i'm not i'm not gonna get into that on this podcast right um, nor am I going to even disagree with it, but um, that that era of storytelling for Star Wars was, I think, much more productive and rich than um, than really what came since the Disney takeover. Yeah, I mean, I haven't read enough of the post Disney um, to really speak on that. Uh, yeah. And that's... I think there's an attempt to do that in in what I have read, uh, but it. Mm, I, 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 I don't want to like get like super hot takey. This like, is this I is beyond that, the scope of yeah, of this podcast. The... I just feel like <laughs> so in the prequels got a lot of criticism for mm, various quality issues, mm-hmm. uh, and so the sequel trilogy, which I mean. We won't go too far into it, but relied mostly on the classic Star Wars tropes, and a lot of the a lot of the expanded media around the sequels and and since you know 2012 13 uh, when that media push started um, have also relied on the same classic Star Wars tropes. There are exceptions, and there are even some new canon books I'd love to do on this podcast um, to kind of yeah. talk about good examples of, of newer Star Wars material, but. Um, at least with the prequels, you had an attempt to reframe the, the classic narrative and, and reframe the universe. I mean, the way the way the prequels shifted everything we previously knew about Star Wars in canon, you mm-hmm. know, was was a big deal. And so, going back to Kratos Trap, which when was this? Like ninety? I think it's ninety six. Um, yeah, I should I should I look actually. <laughs> uh, yeah, ninety six, September or October ninety six. Um, Sounds about right. But this is this was kind of a signpost in the development of the Star Wars grand canon, and I'm not just talking about like canonicity as. Um, it's currently thought of today where it's like, well, this is canon and this is non-canon. I mean, the canon, the the greater body of Star Wars work. Yes. Um, and the Kratos Trap signified a shift in, in what writers were willing to do in Star Wars. And the... It, Without getting into spoilers, it drops off a little bit in uh, in the back to war. As far as this goes, that that gets a little more straightforward. Uh, but this, I think, really lays the groundwork for especially what Aaron Alston did in the Roth the or the Wraith books. Mm, okay. Um, 
Uh, Which you've already done. Yes. Yeah. And and we may we may redo those episodes at some point. They were um they were very much non spoilery from a beginner reader point of view because my wife was yeah. doing them. Mm-hmm. Uh they were pretty short. Maybe we'll we'll revisit those in the future, bring Lauren back on Might as she fun. gets further into the expanding universe. But I'd like to jump into NJO, but we'll see how it goes. Oh yeah, well <laughs> oh, I need to reread those. But Kratos Trap, yeah. So like there's and this all stems back to Michael Stackpole's willingness to use point of view in a different way. And yeah, you know, we talk a lot about point of view on this podcast. It's tough to get away from it when we're reading authors like Robert Jordan, Brandon Sanderson, uh, Matthew Stover, mm-hmm. uh, guys who wield point of view in very deliberate, calculated ways. And that's not typically how Star Wars writers approach. They're just like, I'm going to tell this guy's story. So this guy is the point of view. But here, there are deliberate point of view choices being made by Stackpole to to complicate the story, to add depth to the story, and not just to be like, all right, well, I, I'm going to tell this other hero's story or, or, or make a foil with lure where it's like, I have a hero and a villain, you know? Right. Um, they're they're just really clever choices made, and that's the kind of stuff that I love. You know, mm-hmm. as as both a writer and a reader, um, props to Stackpole. Yeah, um, we might have even unfairly maligned him um, in our previous reviews. Not unfairly. Not unfairly. <laughs> <laughs> um, but what he does in this book. It might not be as fun of a read, um, but he pulls off some stuff you wouldn't expect. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah the, the other kind of narrative style thing that I have down here is, I believe something I've brought up in, in previous episodes, but it's been a while. Uh, the way he ends chapters. He, he Every chapter has to end on this, like, Big dramatic mm-hmm. statement, it's you like know. A, it's like a TV show. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like chapter seven ends with Mirax messaging Wedge and being like, "You need to get to my ship now. The fate of the whole New Republic is in your hands." And then it's like Wedge is just meeting with this Vradix right. rebel. <laughs> and uh, and however, however, he does nail it from time to time. And I gotta say. The end of chapter 41, where we have Wedge in his X-Wing, and he gets, uh, he, you know, he looks at his his scanner after hearing, you know, the reports of ground quakes and destruction, and, and he, like, yells at the squadron to get back to him, and they're like, what's out there, lead? And he goes, it's something that shouldn't be there. IFF Beacons report it's a super star destroyer that goes by the name Lusankia. Like, that... That moment, reading this book for the first time, I was like, "Oh yeah, you know, <laughs> like, like that." That was such a great bob to drop right mm-hmm. there, uh, especially because, like, you know, Lusakia. Obviously, the name is inspired by the the Soviet, the infamous Soviet prison. Ah, uh, Lubyanka. It's yeah, yeah. So, or pre-Soviet. I mean, it's just been the headquarters of. Russian state secret police yeah, going yeah, yeah. back to the 
like 19th century. Right. And so when you're reading these books the first time, if, if you're aware of that, which I was aware of that, I was like, oh, okay. Like that's, that's like a neat little inspiration thing. Yeah. Like, so you're just thinking about it as a prison and then you get to the S chapter. You're just like, oh, shit. like <laughs> it's a ship <laughs> and not just a ship. It's a friggin' executor class. Yes. Like <laughs> it's, it's a, it's a giant, you know, miles long ship buried beneath the city. Yeah. That's, and not just beneath a city, but like beneath Imperial City, and it's just killing everybody to break out. Yeah, you know, you think about the the scale of destruction, it, it, urban destruction that we've seen on Earth throughout some of the wars or terrorist attacks or whatever. It's like the Lusankia breaking out in this scene probably killed more people than all the human beings who have ever died in war on planet earth. (laughs) It's, it's, uh, well, I think the book even like gets into an idea of the destruction. It causes. It's like a hundred square kilometers of cityscape is destroyed. It's just pulled up by this ship. And, and I, I've seen some discussion online of like this kind of, you know, beggars belief like how how could a ship of that size be buried beneath a cityscape and uh-huh. and I, I guess the book goes to some lengths to explain that um right with like palpatine like wiping manipulating yeah. people erasing memories and whatever using droids to build it it's like, some yeah. of that power creep in star wars but of all the things that happen in star wars it's not that bad. Oh no, this is far from the most ludicrous. Yeah, as far yeah, as the it's, yeah, it's it's a bit over the top, but but it works. It's Star Wars. It really does work. Yeah, um, and I also appreciate how uh, Aaron Alston returns to this at the end of the the first Wraith Squadron book, and and has a a particularly amusing scene. Um, with face Lauren spinning a yarn, <laughs> but but yeah, do you have any you know any other like style or, or theme narrative? No, I just he still does that like rather than you know Corin said it's like the pilot said yeah um, <laughs> the diminutive pilot from Corellia <laughs> right it, it's just he still does that and it's like okay like. I know who he is. I know what he looks like. I know who this character is. Like, I get it. It's just, it it, it just throws me off. It does. As yeah. I'm reading. It just kind of messes with my flow. Even, even though, like, he still does it, I will say, he does it less in this book than he did in Wedge's Gamble or Rogue Squadron. And he still does it in Back to War. He does, but but even <laughs> less. There, yeah. there, there were only a handful of times that, at least that I noticed it, where it like pulled me out right. of the reading experience. Yeah, I think that happened, um, happened to me like maybe three or four times in this book, maybe twice in Back to War. Yeah, and, and we'll talk about that more on our Back to War episode. Uh, but but while we're on that kind of topic, characters, uh, should we start with Corn? Sure. He has an interesting ride in this book. He does. Uh, I was, you know, I was surprised reading through it how little Corrin we actually got. Like not very much. Like he he has like these these couple of scenes with the attempted brainwashing, mm-hmm. and then he's 
into the prison population, and we only get like two or three chapters of him meeting Erlor Set and Jandadana mm-hmm. and Derricote, and then and then he's like testing his escape theory, and uh, and and then he's and then he's escaped, and it's like oh oh wow that was that was fast like yeah I as a younger reader I had some trouble kind of visualizing corn scenes um mm. they weren't as like i don't know they they didn't really form a picture in my mind as well as the other parts of the book um going back to it this is probably my second you know read through of this book um it makes more sense to me well, this is only your second read through yeah yeah oh wow okay yeah um go, going it is back not my second yeah. <laughs> um but going back to Corrin's scenes, uh, like I, I have a stronger uh, just feeling of like what his environment looks like in the prison and what he's experiencing. Um, so we, we know, as of the end of the book, that he's in a ship, but it tricks the prisoners into thinking that it's an underground prison. So I believe... It- I believe they are actually mining in the bedrock of Coruscant. Okay. Uh, there are points where Corrin talks about how there are like bulkhead doors, right, between the mines and 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 the impression I always got was that it was like they were actually leaving the Lusankia and mining and mining, the and they just had the whole area like under the like gravity yeah. swap. Mm-hmm. Um. Which is possible. Yeah, but but like you said, I mean, the fact is that there are different ways to interpret it, mm-hmm. and and it's it's not incredibly clear what's going on, uh, even with the you know the revelation of the the corridor with the red stripe, and mm-hmm. and you're like, oh, okay, this that that's what's, but it's never explicitly you know explained how how the setup worked like we know some aspects of it were uh were on the ship because there's a there's a scene in the back door at the end where they're like they're in the lusankia and and there's like rock right it's it's like corn and tyke are like it's pretty weird walking on the ceiling huh they put rock into the ship to confuse the prisoners Mm -hmm. yeah uh, but, but yeah, like Corin though, I, I wasn't as compelled by his stuff with the prisoners this time. Um, it, it, I wasn't ever really convinced that anybody other than Corin was going to escape. Yeah. You know, I, it's, it's still Corin's story. Like he's, yeah. he's the one who's going to break out and then come back to save everyone. Yeah, like he, and he's, and that undercuts a little bit of his his character conflict in those chapters because he's trying to convince Jan and Erlor to come with him, mm-hmm. and 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 you kind of just know that that's not going to happen, so that yeah. it's robbed of a little bit of the tension. But once he does like break out and he's and he's going through this like cat and mouse chase, 
I think that's one of the strongest parts of the book. The, those like, scenes are some of my favorite when yeah. he's... Uh, yeah, we'll revisit those yeah, later we'll, Yeah, we'll, we'll go back to that. <laughs> but but I like what it does with Corrin, where it really shows um, a, a different side of Corrin's competence. It's easy to be like, oh yeah, well he's a smart dude, he's a starfighter pilot, he can do all this stuff, and he's, and he's physically talented. But here we're seeing him kind of like figure out logic puzzles right. and, and put the puzzle pieces together... Uh, based on the evidence around him to... Like, you get to see him be a detective. Yeah, you know, which is his job. Yeah, so. and, and, and that... But that's, like, never been something in the first two books that I was fully convinced of. He didn't feel like a detective. Right. He felt like an action cop hero. Yes. You know, like... And then, especially because the... the the only times in the first two books that he's like actually trying to be a detective, he sucks. <laughs> like he's True. totally wrong. Um, but here it's like, okay, th- this makes sense for why Corrin has the background he does. And here's Corrin using those skills, you know, to figure out what's going on. Yeah. His, his scenes are fun. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, let's talk about Ayala. Yeah. Speaking of our, our detectives here. Yeah. So she's what at this point? She's in New Republic Intelligence. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and she's working on their sort of counterinsurgency mission against um, the terror cells that... A little bit, but mostly she's focusing on the, the trial. True, yes. So there, there's two things she's dealing with. There's yeah. there's the terrorist cells that Laura is running that I mm-hmm. saw left behind. Um, and then there's the trial wherein Tycho is tried with being a traitor, causing yeah. Corrin's death. Yeah. And she's she's pretty much set against Tycho. Yeah, and, and it's only when Dirick shows up again that she starts even considering the fact that there might be more... Her, her husband. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so, yeah, her husband more or less comes back from the grave because he was noted as... Do, do they straight up say he went to Lusankia or just they disappeared? Uh, so, they don't know he went to Lusankia until he kills Lure at the end. And right. then and Ayala's like, why? And he's like, Lusankia. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but they know he... He got picked up in an Imperial sweep yep. because she she and, and Dirick, as part of their Gil Bastra mm, Corsac exit, uh, yeah. they went underground on Coruscant. And Dirick got picked up in a sweep, and he actually shows up in Wedge's Gamble. He's working in Derricote's lab. Oh, He's like a okay. like a an assistant. And there's one point, and we don't know it at that at that point in uh, in Wedge's Gamble, but Derricote calls him Dirick. Okay, I don't remember that. Yeah. Um, and, and so he, he shows back up. He's like, yeah, I got freed when, you know, you guys took the city mm-hmm. and uh, I had to get cleared because I was working in the Krydos development lab. and But now I'm out of quarantine and, and hey, oh, what's up, Wedge? You were here to take my wife on a date? Like, yeah. <laughs> oh, that's okay. No hard feelings, buddy. Like, and and he's he's a really really likable character. He's this super empathetic guy. Yeah. Like he he wants to understand everybody around him. He's he's empathetic to Tycho's situation. Yeah. Um, you know, doesn't believe that Tycho is 
guilty of what he's being charged with and mm -hmm. tries to help with the trial, um, tries to mitigate some of Ayala's aggression and her frustration. Yeah. Because Ayala's kind of out for blood. Like, Corrin is believed to be dead, and she wants someone to blame for it. Yes. Yeah, Ayala is in not a good state in this book. No. Um, not very emotionally healthy. Not at all. Uh, <laughs> which is actually kind of funny because uh, in the scene where Wedge is like building up the courage to go knock on her door and ask her out on a date, you're kind of frustrated as a reader that Derek is there and, yep. and, and the whole date plan is foiled. But then when you take a step back, you're like, that was probably a good thing that Wedge and Isle <laughs> didn't try to start a relationship right now. That like that would not have ended up good. It would not have worked. <laughs> um, and so Derek sort of unintentionally helped Wedge in that scene. <laughs> yeah, the the Wedge Isle relationship will be reapproached mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in what ten in universe years. It's going to be a while. Yeah, oh, I don't know the exact timeline because this is. This is what, um, this is eight, eight or nine ABY. It's not quite nine. I want to say. And then, and then Starfighters is it, 16 ABY or 14 ABY. Something like that. So yeah. back to war. There's got to be a, a timeline in, in it, one of these books. right? Well, in back to war, it wedge. <laughs> Charles Legends novels timeline. Yeah. Talks about that. Um, it's been like a year and a half since I met you all. So the so back to war oh, this is have a, the granulated timeline. Back to war is about the next book is about eighteen months after the first Rogue Squadron. Okay. Um, so this one would be pretty close to that. So basically, what was that? Six years after Battle of the Avon, two years after Endor: Return of the Jedi. So we're about. A year and a half after that. Yeah, let's see. So this is ABY now. Um, okay, Kratos Trap is 7 ABY. Okay. And Starfighters is 13 ABY. Okay. So six years. So yeah, they don't get together yeah. for a while. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, <laughs> and there were, there were some some bumps in the road and some uh, real world bumps in the road to that relationship. But that's something we'll discuss, uh, you know, on a later episode. Uh, but I, I like Ayala. She may be my favorite character in this book. Um, she, she just has a really powerful storyline. Like it's heartbreaking, but it's also completely different from anything published up to this point in the expanded universe yeah you know you, you don't you don't get a hero who has just an utterly heartbreaking uh arc in a book like she's basically framed as the antagonist to the rogues and, yep. and to Tycho for the whole thing even even if we actively working against them in the trial yeah like even if we know she's a good person at heart she is like you're kind of rooting against her and then and then she ends this book where she just had to kill her own husband yeah 
And there's there's no silver lining for her, like other than maybe Corin showing up again. But like, but that's not her doing. She doesn't have any victories in this book, and she's not in a good like, place when the next book begins either. Like, no, they, they, at least Stackpole <laughs> keeps it consistent. Yeah, um, but I love that. Like that's so different. Yeah, it's not a happy ending for her at all. <laughs> yeah, e- e- even at the end of Back to War, like you know the end of the traditional rogue squadron series um she's not a good place no not particularly like yeah um but i love her character because of that and uh well and and, and once again i'm glad stackpole kind of stuck his neck out and and took a risk writing a character this way and a lot of these characters in Kratos Trap are defined by their reaction and their grief about Corrin's death. Um, mm, mm-hmm. of, of course, he's not the only rogue that's died since the beginning of the series, but he was our protagonist. We knew him well. And so we can understand kind of what these characters are feeling. You know, Wedge's, oh, yeah. Wedge's feeling of failure as, you know, the commanding officer. Ayala is his friend. Mirax is his romantic interest they're all grappling with their trauma over his loss yeah yeah it's like with wedge um i think this is a good leaping off point into wedge actually uh where aiella's grief is manifesting in a uh, a short-sighted desire for vengeance right uh wedges manifests in this like really kind of wounded animal like he he's quick to lash out at the people around him mm-hmm. um he does stupid things he, you know he he's you know we know ultimately he's vindicated as far as Tycho goes but he's being really irrational about the whole thing where he's like i don't want to hear any evidence i know he, i'm right and his, you're wrong his mind is made up and 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 anytime somebody approaches him or talks to him about it or when he when he goes to the provisional council like talks to akbar he he's snappy Mm -hmm. he's he's bitter and and then we see that kind of filter down throughout the rest of the rogues uh which i love um there are a few points over over the course of the series like all all nine main Mm x-wing books yeah where we get kind of references to the fact that all the rogues look to Wedge. They follow his lead, not just in combat, but kind of in life choices. But here, we don't get that like explicitly told to us. It's shown to us. And it's only something you can really pick up when you start digging into the characters and how they're reacting to their grief. Gavin does the same thing. You know, Aesir does the mm-hmm. same thing. Um, Iniri Forge is kind of like... I mean, she's always a little hard edge, but yeah. but we see a lot of the a lot of the rogues having short tempers in this book, and I think it's because they're looking to wedge for leadership and they're taking after the way he's reacting to Corn. It's his attitude throughout the book. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's good character work. I mean, I've I've been on Stackpole's case about his his lackluster character work and some of the earlier things but 
this is good stuff here. This is good stuff. You see growth in Stackpole's characterization. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you, you can't you can't really come at this book for not being as fun as the others because it's it's not interested in being fun no it's not and, <laughs> and this is i mean of course there's more x-wing books but you kind of think of this as a four book series yes this, this initial set and so you've had two where it's like introduction with lots of action further development lots of action and now it's like a pause character development for the whole book yeah to set you up for the big finale in four yes so that you understand all the characters better so you empathize with their feelings on a deeper level mm-hmm. um yeah the, the, this book oh. do do not skip it if you're reading the series and just from what you said there i'm like yeah we definitely need to do race squadron redux episodes <laughs> Because there are are things I want to say. I will be (laughs) rereading those, um, you know, in the the near future after reading all these. Uh, All right, twist my arm. I'll reread them too. (laughs) (laughs) I can't stand those books. Totally hate them. So horrible. Not not even close to my favorites. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. So uh, are there any other characters you're interested in talking about? Um, I mean... Maybe Lure? I think Lure... He's, he's interesting in this book. Um, I So he's a POV bad guy, but I always thought of him as being a bit reasonable. Like I understood his motivations. Um, in this book, he is wholly consumed by his fear. Yes. His, his whole character arc in this book is self-preservation... Um, nothing beyond himself. It's and that's good. I mean that that's that's it his character. Him, yeah, if, uh, if he, he yeah. is a very selfish person. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, 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 you know he tells his his little terrorist out. It's like we're gonna blow up a school because it serves our interests. Like mm-hmm. like there, there's no question about that. There, there's no um like you, you get some morally complex Imperials throughout the EU. Um, throughout Star Wars, but he is not one of them. He's just me, 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 my safety, and and, and not even my... You see a little bit in the previous books, like my advancement, my like self-aggrandizement here, it's solely survival. And it's interesting to watch him yeah, scramble. Like, like there's... There was always a little bit of an undercurrent of this in the first two books, but here it's just on full display. He is pitiful. Yes. He's, like, he's, he's even when he's trying to convince himself that what he's doing is going to end up with him becoming like a moth or something like right. that, it's such a thin veneer over the truth of his terror. It's not megalomania. We're used to having Imperials with Correct. megalomania. I mean, that's Isard yeah. to the letter. Yeah. But lore is all about and that's voru to a letter yeah yeah voru and isar the other well and delart um <clears throat> the other antagonists in this series are all about <laughs> megalomania mustache twirling bad guy kind of yeah. kind of a thing 
Lore is afraid of everything. He's afraid of the New Republic, because they're obviously the enemy. He's afraid of Isard, his superior, because she thinks, or he thinks that she'll, you know, kill him, punish him for failure. Like, he's just scrambling around to protect himself, insulate himself. Right. Like, he, what is revealed in this book is that, unlike what he tells us in Rogue Squadron, he is not out to gain power for its own sake. Right. He is out to gain power as a shield. Because, to protect himself. Yeah, because yeah. he is, at his core, uh, he perceives himself to be a little smith, a little fish in a small pond. Yeah. And he's like, I need to... It's not that I need to grow into becoming a bigger fish. It's that... I need to acquire something else to protect me from the bigger it, fish. It's not your typical imperial where it's like, I need to become powerful so that I can exert influence over others. It's like, no, I need yeah. to become a bigger deal so that I can keep other people from hurting me. From, you know, to, to mitigate threats. Yeah, yeah. So, and, and ultimately, I like that uh, for his character. It's, it's I don't more think human. He... It's more conventional. Yeah. And so it's more believable. Um, I think it was a great narrative choice to have him uh, go out like a chump. Yeah. I mean, I mean, he's <laughs> he's terrified. Gets killed. On a, gets killed. Right. He's brokering a deal to protect himself. Mm-hmm. And as the reader, you kind of and roll your eyes. And he's utterly paranoid about every step of the way. And yeah. And then he gets he gets killed anyway and he gets killed and it wasn't even like he wasn't even the target exactly like but it's still satisfying because um it's like he's making this deal to protect himself and you're 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 just thinking like great so Laura's gonna get off scot-free and and not be held accountable for his crimes and then uh the programmed assassin um derek you know, comes out shooting and nails Lore more or less on accident. Die, Derek Oat, die. Yeah. Um, <laughs> totally different target. Uh, totally different loose end that I started is trying to tie up. Uh, winds up killing Lore and he just dies pitifully. Yep. It's it's appropriate. It's thematically it is. appropriate. It is. Yeah. Uh, so, so I think there... Uh, let's move on to some, you know, just kind of miscellaneous points and, and just a greater, like, Star Wars discussion around this. Sure. Um, yeah, so, um, I don't want to make this part all nitpicks. Okay. But I do have a couple of nitpicks. Go for it. Um, and this goes back to scale, right? We've we've talked about this. Yes. However, like, this goes beyond scale, I think. In, in the final, in the final battle... Uh, there's one point where uh, where Wedge is flying toward Lusankia as it's it's breaking through the city, mm-hmm. and he says the rangefinder showed it to be 25 kilometers distant, and then he messages the rogues and goes, "We have three minutes at speed before we're on top of it." Yeah, something tells me. Uh, X-Wings go a little faster than like a 8 kilometers bit. a minute. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, like. <laughs> some questions were raised in the, in the last 
part of the book where it's like, well, it, I mean, I mean, what, do we get figures? I'm, I'm going to go online for this. About what now? Do we get figures of like how fast an X-Wing is in atmosphere? Oh. Because. We should. According to. You, you on Wikipedia? I'm trying to be. Yeah. You got to get to those legends. Pages. It's, it's like eight or nine hundred <laughs> kilometers an hour. Right, it's 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 up there. Um, I mean, it's maybe not. <laughs> it's maybe not as quick as like a. But like, e- even if you try to say, "Oh, well, relative speed," uh, the Lusankia is trying to go straight up and break out of atmosphere as fast as possible, and, right. and they're coming at a, you know, a, an oblique angle. Um, <laughs> no way is that three minutes long. No. Um, <laughs> But it's like, but this just ties back into into things like some of the distances in in starfighter combat, where you know you have two fighters in space going full speed head to head, and it's like, um, you know, according to Star Wars Behind the Magic, oh okay, some sort of reference book, uh, they go a thousand fifty kilometers an hour. Without shields on. So with shields on, with that kind of... With, with particle shields, so right, there's like actual atmospherics. Yeah. yeah. Getting into some hard sci-fi, hard sci-fi here with our Star Wars. Um, so yeah, it, it's that's like... Yeah, dramatically faster. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's like, no, you're 25 kilometers away from that, you're on it now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but... it's it, It's a jet. Yeah. yeah, but I I also noted what I think is the last time this comes up, uh, where Wedge talks about um, one wing of ties being thirty six, and I think it's supposed to be seventy two. It is supposed to be seventy two, uh, and I I believe that is um, like so so I brought it up where it. The easiest explanation is that New Republic fighter wings are 36. Because mm-hmm. General Psalm has defender wing and Which it's three I, squadrons. And I think they are. I think that's um, an established But that Imperial figure. wings are 72. 72. But... Um, well, because you look at like... Only uh, in the Stackpole books are Imperial wings ever called 36. Right. Because I think... Forgive us for projecting hard sci-fi onto Star Wars, but that's just what we like to do. Um, <laughs> We're nerds. A New Republic <laughs> wing is like one X-wing, one Y-wing, one A-wing. Newer ships, maybe a B-wing, replacing the Y-wing. Right. Um, the problem is that going forward, basically from here on, everything is everything is seventy. Yeah, because it's like the standard is a Star Destroyer carries one wing of fighters. Right. Because New Republic starts using Star Destroyers mm-hmm. frequently. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's just your basic ship. It's not the bad guy ship anymore. Yeah, it's yeah. it's your standard your default space superiority capital cruiser. ship. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah I, I know it's classified as a destroyer, but in, in actual like fighting it's, it's not. Um, capability, it's really more of a cruiser. It's not, cl- it's not classified as like a destroyer, though, because there, there isn't... We're, we're getting well, way, Star Destroyer. We're getting way into the weeds here. Star, yeah, Star yeah. Destroyer is its own class. Um, if you read, like, New Essential Guide to Warfare, 
Star Destroyer is a class above cruiser. Above cruiser? Oh. In which it includes like what? Mon Calamari, MC-80 type ships. No, um, yeah, yeah. I, the Nebula I class. I thought they, I thought they, they just reclassified because it's all like star whatever uh, based on like real world naval. Well, and it's classes. not. So you have like you have I Corv- thought they just reclassified destroyers up one. No, so there's corvettes, uh-huh. which are you know little ships. Oh, of course, because you have like strike cruisers. Yeah, and... corvettes, frigates, cruisers, heavy yeah. cruisers. Star Destroyers, Star Dreadnoughts is pretty much how it right. goes. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. yeah. Like like the dividing line between like a Star Destroyer and a Star Yeah, where, whereas in real life, a Destroyer is a smaller, less heavy class of ship. Yeah, than it has nothing to do with a real world Destroyer, which is more or less a frigate. Those terms yeah. are yeah. interchangeable. Yeah. <laughs> and your weekly dose of Eking Out Loud being ridiculous. Naval, ter- <laughs> naval terminology. Yeah. Um, in case it's surprising to anybody that I got really, really, really into Wheel of Time and Cosmere lore. <laughs> <laughs> this this lore is what started me down that path. <laughs> well, we really get off on the ship stuff. Yeah, we do. The hard sci-fi aspects of Star For anybody else who, who uh, has similar sensibilities, if you don't already play uh, Empire at War, specifically the Thrawn's Revenge mod, go do that. Yeah, message um, us. We'll help you. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it will change your life. Um, <laughs> so let's see. Uh, other other um, uh, miscellaneous points. Uh, oh, um, Akbar's Ocean analogies. How do yes. you feel about it? Oh, Lord. Um, I like it. It's it's funny. It's just, um, it's okay. He's a fish person, so he has to make metaphors about the sea, like a tidal wave, the imperial presence, like, like, like the salt of the ocean, like. Look, you're talking to a guy who loves the Wheel of Time, which famously has a character from a fishing town who constantly makes fish analogies. I'm all here for this. (laughs) (laughs) It's a bit silly, but you will, you, the reader, will know full well that Akbar comes from an ocean planet. Yep, and he is a fish person. I have no problem with it. Yep, it's. I, I don't mind. It, it is what it is. He never uses it in the movies, but he only has like five lines in the movies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Memorable lines. Yes, yeah, very memorable. Um, and then I had two lines down that, that made me laugh for very different reasons. Uh, one of them where I was like, this is just a case of a Star Wars author going way over the top in service to his own characters. And this is when uh, Wedge is meeting with the Provisional Council and, and you know, trying to, like, get them to drop the trial and, and all of this. And, and Leia's heart is just breaking for Wedge because she, she sees how much it's tearing him up. And Wedge says, in all of the time he'd known her, she had never looked so saddened. <laughs> Yeah, I'm sure she was nowhere near this sad when her home planet got blown up or her or her one true love was captured by the Empire. <laughs> like 
Yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, okay, Wedge, sure. <laughs> uh, but the other one, and, and this was just excellent, excellent imagery. Um, Wedge is talking with Akbar once again, and and uh, he's, you know, he's... Akbar's sending Wedge off to Ryloth, and, and Wedge is kind of, like, protesting. He's like, we're going to have to miss part of the trial... You know, like, why are we doing this? Rogue Squadron's really high profile. This is a bad idea. And, um, and Akbar's like, you know, it has been suggested that having Arisi and Rogue Squadron present to guide the ships back here to Coruscant would prove to the Typharans that we appreciate the risks they're taking. And Wedge just goes, do I sense Borskphalia's furred hand in this? <laughs> <laughs> like, I love that. I just got this image of these furry little paws. Like, <laughs> Oh, That's great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, unless you have any other miscellaneous points, I think we should no. end it. Uh, <laughs> we can uh, move on. While, I, while I'm wiping the tears from my eyes. <laughs> um, uh, three favorite scenes. Uh, oh, man. Third, third favorite, John. What was your third favorite scene? Um, I... I like when they come to the Alderaan graveyard and mm. they're trying to rendezvous with a convoy of Bacta and it's all destroyed, ruined by Zinj and and his forces are, what, what would you even call Zinj? A deuteragonist that never actually appears? Um, yeah. Other bad guy? Yeah. So y- you have all this hope in this convoy that's bringing this life-saving substance to the New Republic. And they go to, to rendezvous with it for protection, and it's all all gone. Everything is destroyed. And you just get this righteous rage from the rogues, you know, as they fight back on against the one remaining, you know, bad guy ship that's still there. Um, I, I thought it was, you know, it's one of the few action scenes in this book, and I, I thought it had good emotional impact. Yes, definitely. Yeah. It's like how many millions, billions of lives are reliant upon this supply chain that was just cut off. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Mm. Well, I, I have a very different third favorite scene. <laughs> um, and and this is when Corin, you know, makes his arrival, his grand entrance into the court and he just like goes straight up you know you know Tycho's like you know getting the murder charge removed from the indictment's a good start and he's like I can do much better watch me and he goes Emtre say nothing shut up shut up shut up <laughs> the droid's head swiveled around to look at him sir I understood the first request quadruple redundancy in orders is hardly required in my case <laughs> <laughs> like the the humor of it combined with the the shock of like, wait, Mtray got changed, you know, and then and then you get the revelation that uh, Kraken has been behind Mtray the whole time and has been using Mtray to monitor Tycho and and to make sure that Tycho wasn't the spy. Like, great stuff. Yeah, love that. Yeah, love that. Excellent. So number two. Number two. Um... I like when, hmm, 
I I like when Corn is discovering his um, his Jedi heritage, so mm. to speak. Yeah. Um, it's it's interesting because because these books had a different understanding of like the Jedi and the Clone Wars and the pre Empire era than we got in the prequels. You can yep. reconcile it. It's it's possible. It's difficult. Yeah, you got to jump through. Some you got to jump through some hoops. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> but even in this book, like like it's still, you can still make a jive with the prequels. Mm-hmm. Um, so Corrin is escaping, and he gets to this, like basically the Emperor's museum. Um, maybe it used to be part of the Jedi Temple. We don't know. But there's all yeah. these busts of you know old Republic Jedi that have been defaced all these artifacts that the emperor kept around as trophies mm-hmm. and corn realizes that he's connected to it and normally it'd be like oh the writer has made his protagonist a jedi yippee like it n- normally i would not be interested in this i'd be like oh of course he's force sensitive like whatever but here it works because corn is discovering this from a position of ignorance and from like a point of like low skill like he doesn't really know yeah what he's doing it's a it well it's not even that just he doesn't know what he's doing it's that he's not effectively using it right like, i think there's a very different perspective between say corin discovering his jedi heritage or his force sensitivity and not knowing what he's doing versus ray discovering mm-hmm. her force sensitivity and not knowing what she's doing but she is just like amazing at it right and corin like he's not that great not not very good at it <laughs> yeah like, no uh, he, <laughs> he's kind of fumbling it, around it helps him in like one or two key situations mm-hmm. but mostly he's still getting by on his pre-existing skills and then when he has the opportunity at the end of this book to expand his jedi skills he says no yeah yeah, and you're not expecting that. Luke Skywalker is like, hey, Corrin, come be a Jedi. And he's like, nah. Nah, bruh. I got stuff to do. Maybe someday. Top. Do it tomorrow. We'll, <laughs> we'll, get, we'll get into the maybe Sunday part later because obviously Corrin becomes yes. a big DL character yeah, yeah. for the rest of the EU. But in this book, it's like he he's basically like a clueless guy running around with a lightsaber he's found yeah um and and stackpole still writes great fights um yes maybe not the most popular readily apparent opinion but i think his his fights his visceral action are even better than his starfighter combat i agree with you yeah I think, um, if anything, Alston writes better Starfighter combat. I agree with you again. Um, I think uh, Stackpole's Starfighter combat is a little too detailed. It's a little too technical. Yep. It's a, Yeah, you don't need it for like every single instance. Um, yeah, but like, his, his, his like person-to-person fights? Very good. Super well-written. Yeah. Yeah, yeah like uh, it, it makes a lot of sense how he describes Starfighter combat in light of the video game inspiration. Yes. But at the same time, when I'm talking about reading a book, I care a lot more about what the character is feeling and going through in the in the high stakes yes. action moment than I care about like 
he hit his right rudder pedal and rotated 90 degrees and and then pulled a double loop backward. It's like, I want to know more about what's going through Corrin's head. Yeah. And we get that a lot more in the straight-up firefights or, like, yeah, um, you know, more personal combat. Right, like when he's escaping. Yeah. Um, yeah, which is why I enjoyed that section mm-hmm. so much. It it, mm-hmm. it makes up for the lack of starfighter combat in this book. Yeah. And speaking of great fight scenes or great, like, personal action, my second favorite is Lure's death and Derek's death. It's, it's the building tension. You have this just sense of foreboding as their airspeeders going into the you know, into the tower at the courtroom, at the courthouse. And and they're walking down the hallway and there's just like you know, she she like kinda something touches her neck and she like brushes it away mm-hmm. and you're like, What the What was that? you know? And then and then the way this the there there's a page break. And the way the scene opens, Ayella began to turn toward the unlit box, the elevator. Her blaster coming down as she squared her stance. Something black moved within the lift. A shadow that resolved itself into the form of a man dashing forth. A blazing blaster held in each hand. Die, Derricote, die, he screamed. Scarlet bolts of blaster energy burned toward the trio. Like, talk about painting an image in your head, you know? And then, and and so he starts with the, the spectacle, right? And then he goes into the physical feeling. You, you start with what you're seeing. Then he goes into the physical feeling. And we get, again, the... the We talked about it in Wedge's Gamble. Kind of the, the better, more visceral descriptions. Mm-hmm. Where it's, you know, before... You know, scarlet bolts of energy burn toward the trio. One caught Noir Venn in the right hip. It spun him around and flung him through the air. Before the toilet could hit the ground... A pair of blaster bolts lands through Curtin Lure's chest. The first, which drilled him high on the left side of his body, lifted him from his feet. The second struck him high in the abdomen and centered on his midline, driving him back and down. He landed beside Noiravan's tumbling body and slid halfway over to the airspeeder. It's like, so now we don't just have the what you're seeing, but now we have the, the, the impression of impact. We have bodies hitting the ground. We have bodies right. spinning through the air. You know, we have movement. And then we get the emotion. Years of training overrode conscious thought in Ayala. As bolts began to track in her direction, she coolly triggered a double burst that stopped the assassin's charge only a stride or two from the lift. The bolts stabbed deep into the man's gut, snapping him forward. Uh, you know, it goes on. And then, and then she runs up to him. The assassin made a sound, a little moan, and it cut her legs out from under her. She sank to her knees beside him and rolled him onto his back. Even before she saw his face, the sounds he made and the feeling of his bony shoulders told her who he was. Again, that that immersion in multiple senses, the feeling of bony shoulders, the sound of his moans, you know, like, and then why, Derek? Why, Lusankia? Yeah, it it oh. he doesn't even say who it was. He lets the character say the name yep yeah yeah it's it's a very well written scene yeah yeah love that love that and and, and then it ends and it ends in the submersion of emotion with her hand Ayala smoothed the pain on his face into peace then realized he'd slipped away her throat thick her eyes welling with tears 
She gently lowered his head to the ferrocrete floor and kissed him one last time. Good stuff. So what's your favorite? My favorite scene... So... This one might even be a bit unfair. It's just my favorite scene for me. So when Mm. this book was written, Coruscant was an idea and a concept. I don't, like, maybe at this point, your only idea of Coruscant would be from, like, Shadows of the Empire concept art. Like, Oh, yeah. 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 In 97, like, or 96. Yeah. like maybe that was around at this point like in some you comics know, uh, I, I I think you're on a really good track right here I remember getting a Star Wars Monopoly mm. I don't remember how old I was but I was very young it was in the 90s Yeah. and Boardwalk and Park Place were Imperial City and the Imperial Palace Okay. and they were these like super grainy and they had concept art they had concept yeah. art yeah. of course and I was fascinated yes um and i got the um gosh i'm so glad i still have all these i need to go find them in my parents basement um the (laughs) star wars young reader magazine every issue i'll i'll show those to you sometimes so every issue they would have a spotlight on a planet kashyyyk yavin um coruscant Uh, and it got obscure like there was like um Gosh, Bestine, like random. Whoa. Yeah. We, Ord Mantel. You know where Jack Porkins is from, Bestine? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, but you'd get a spotlight on a planet, and it would tell you about it, and it would have concept art of that planet from whatever source, um, but very detailed stuff. And I remember Whoa. the Coruscant one. It's awesome. You know, and, and of course, it would have like a real world equivalent of like Coruscant is like New York City or whatever. Um, mm. And... Yeah, so so Coruscant, you, the reader at the time this book comes out has a very limited interpretation of what that entails. Mm-hmm. Having seen the prequels, Coruscant is firm in your mind yes. for what it looks like. So much action takes place there in every one of the prequel movies. Um, in in fact. I remember being nine years old and seeing episode one and being like, holy crap, Coruscant. Like, that, that's, yeah. that's an idea they took yep. from the books. Like, incredible. And, and of course, it's not just from the books because it was a concept for Return mm-hmm. of the Jedi that mm-hmm. was never used. Anyways, um, so when you have... A, you read this book with the prequels in mind, you have an idea of Coruscant that's a lot more tangible than a reader probably would have had when this book came out. And so for me, the part where the Lusankia escapes and is, it describes mm. how it's like early morning as the sun is coming up. Yeah. Um, it, it's very clear in my head. It's just like the lighting of it, uh, the way the ships look. Um, it's, it's it's very tangible to me. And, and um, yeah, it's a bit silly. It's a ship coming up out of the city. Like, but... I, I visualize like that destruction and it kind of mobilizes the reader even more so against the antagonists that they would go to this level of destruction to further their goals. Sure. Um, it makes the bad guys even worse. You know, I, I'm fascinated by the, the image 
there because I hadn't really thought of the specific, you know, the, the morning, the early morning lighting coming into play. Mm-hmm. But as you were describing that, it actually struck me how much of a uh, like a mirrored scene this is. And I wonder if Michael Stackpole had this in his mind. In this scene, we have a super star destroyer rising out of the cityscape with the sun blooming behind it. A, you know, a, a stereotypically triumphant image, right? right? The sunrise, the ascension, but it's a, a failure, it's a loss, it's a catastrophe. Yes. Versus the executor against stark black mm-hmm. crashing into the, the descent, but it's a triumph. Oh, I never even thought of that. It's, it's like... Yeah, it's, it's a complete flipped. reversal. Yeah. Interesting. Huh. Never occurred to me. I'm, I may have to reach out to Michael Stackpole on Twitter <laughs> or something. Be Is like, that intentional? Yo. <laughs> yeah. Not that I have any kind of personal relationship with Michael Stackpole, but... Um, but yeah, so my favorite scene is uh, Korn's escape from the Lusankia. We we talked about this already. You know the way he he figures out the hidden turbo lift, mm-hmm. and he he kind of uses deduction and and his problem solving to to overcome what should have been an insurmountable challenge. Um, yeah, just yeah. just good stuff. It's. Yeah, Corn's escape is interesting, believable. I did not appreciate it when I first mm-hmm. read this book. Mm-hmm. I, I, coming back as an adult, it's great. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so uh, before we get into the final draft, I'm curious. Uh, of the three rogue books we've done so far, where would you rank this? Mm, it's tough to say. Yeah. I don't dislike any of them. Um, they're all, they're all upper tier Star Wars books for me. Um, I think I would probably put this one as, gosh. I had a hard time with this too. You're going to call me crazy. I think this one is my second favorite. Okay. With Wedge's Gamble as your favorite? No. Oh, I am going to call you crazy. <laughs> oh, well, sorry, out of the first three? Yeah, the first three. Uh, yes, Wedge's Gamble would be my favorite. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, okay, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I it, was it, like, Rogue Squadron was yeah, your favorite? No, 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 no. no, no. Um, ro- I, love, I love original Rogue Squadron. It's, prob- it's probably my lowest of this four-book series. Yes, definitely. Uh, so, so we agree then. I, yeah. I think this is, of the first three, my second favorite with Wedge's Gamble narrowly edging it out mm-hmm. Narr- narrowly yeah, yeah. True. um wedges gamble and kratos trap are like stackpole had different goals in mind yes both of them and respect the the focus kind of the the, the thrust of kratos trap is something i appreciate more um 
Like it, it's it's the kind of book that I go out of my way to read now. But look, this is Star Wars, right? And uh, and and when I sit down to read a Star Wars book, I want to have some damn fun. Yeah. And ultimately, there isn't a whole lot of fun in this book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, like this is it's a pretty really depressing book. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and and uh, since I've been glowing about that all all episode long, I'm like, obviously, that's not a bad thing, but. I have to give the edge to Wedge's Gamble because that book is just chock full of action. It's a good time. And and it's mostly full of the kind of action that Stackpole does really well. Yeah, it's it's more of that personal action. It's mm-hmm. more it, it's it's less conventional Starfighter stuff, more yeah. plot driven action. And and when it is Starfighter stuff, there there are more personal stakes involved. Yeah. Like uh, taking out the planetary shield or whatever. Well, well it's it just like Corrin flying into that fight, having just had this confrontation with Tycho, and and having just made this promise to Mirax to start dating after they take Coruscant. Right. Like there are personal stakes involved rather than just like we're gonna go here and blow up some nameless Tie Fighters, you know. Uh, so so yeah, I think I think we agree um, on that ranking. So, final draft. Uh, we're drinking the same beer. Yep. Thank you for that. The, yes, indeed. Well, thank my wonderful wife who works at this brewery. Yes. <laughs> um, and uh, for for those listeners who may be paying attention, this is of course a beer from Weldworks in Colorado. Um. And I have to admit, it's pretty good beer. It's not usually my favorite kind of, it, of style. Yeah, nor is it for me, but um, what is this? The second beer I've had today. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very good. It's, yeah. I, it's not harsh at all. It's just got a nice balance. Yeah. So, so this is a double IPA mm-hmm. brewed with El Dorado and Talus hops. And then featuring Cryo Pop from Yakima Chief Hops, which I'm not exactly sure what Cryo Pop is. It's a trademark know. of them. Um, clearly, it's it's one of these um, like cryogenic hop extraction. It's a hop extract, yeah. yeah. Uh, but it's my not. Goodness, it doesn't, this is fruity as It does hell. not burn at no, all. There's no, it, no hop burn in this beer. Yes. Yeah, which it, is rare for for double IPAs. Uh, I mean, like, I just take a whiff. And it's orange juice. Yeah. Like. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, it smells like orange juice. It looks like orange juice. Yeah. Honestly, a very dark golden color. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, not what I would expect from an IPA like this. I'm, I'm used to, you know, kind of a, maybe a brighter, like mm-hmm. straw orange yellow here. kind of. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's, it's super tasty. 9.1%. It's a hefty one. Yeah. And... While this isn't perfectly appropriate for this specific book, um, unfortunately, I've already covered the one Star Wars book that I know of that this beer would be appropriate for, and and I, I have to bring this on. Uh, this beer is called Frozen in Carbonite. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, we've already done Shadows of the Empire. Uh, and, <laughs> Would have been perfect for that. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but uh, this beer didn't exist when we made yeah, that episode, yeah. so I was like, "Well, I got, I got to do something." But, but yeah, this is 
This was a delight. I, I'm, I shouldn't be surprised that Weldworks made a good IPA. It's a really good beer. But, like, I, I'm i just not a huge IPA fan in general. Me neither. Um, thankfully, it seems like most of the IPAs I've brought on here uh, I've enjoyed. The majority of them have been from Anchorage Brewing Company, who okay. crushes it at the IPA game. Yep. Yep. So, uh, but yeah. Yeah. So I think that brings us to the end of this episode. And this is, oh man, episode 140 of the Inking Out Loud podcast. We've finally hit 140. Wow. Uh, and in fact, yesterday, a little trivia. We are recording this on October 28th, 2021. Yesterday was the three-year anniversary of recording our very first episode on the first half of Elantris by Brandon Sanderson. Uh, Congrats. Yeah, uh, it's been a hell of a three years. Um, you know, and, and honestly, if you're listening to this as a Star Wars fan uh, and you haven't read Brandon Sanderson, check him out. He's, he's quite an author himself. But... As always, I have been your host, Drew McCaffrey, and with me is my co-host and resident Star Wars fan, John. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time.